Section 9 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 9. Book 3, Part 3. Death, therefore, is nothing, nor at all concerns us, since the nature or substance of the soul is to be accounted mortal. And as in past times we felt no anxiety when the Carthaginians gathered on all sides to fight with our forefathers, and when all things under the lofty air of heaven, shaken with the dismaying tumult of war, trembled with dread, and men were uncertain to the sway of which power everything human, by land and by sea, was to fall. So when we shall cease to be, when there shall be a separation of the body and soul of which we are conjointly composed, it is certain that to us who shall not then exist, nothing will by any possibility happen or excite our feeling, not even if the earth shall be mingled with the sea and the sea with the heaven. And even if the substance of the mind and the powers of the soul, after they have been separated from our body, still retain their faculties, it is nothing to us who subsist only as being conjointly constituted by an arrangement and union of body and soul together. Nor, if time should collect our material atoms after death and restore them again as they are now placed, and the light of life should be given back to us, would it yet at all concern us that this were done, when the recollection of our existence has once been interrupted? and it is now of no importance to us, in regard to ourselves, what we were before, nor does any solicitude affect us in reference to those whom a new age shall produce from our matter, should it again be brought together as it is at present. For when you consider the whole past space of infinite time, and reflect how various are the motions of matter, you may easily believe that our atoms have often been placed in the same order as that in which they now are. Yet we cannot revive that time in our memory, for a pause of life has been thrown between, and all the motions of our atoms have wandered hither and thither, far away from sentient movements. For he, among men now living, to whom misery and pain are to happen after his death, must himself exist again in his own identity, at that very time on which the evil which he is to suffer may have power to fall. But since death, which interrupts all consciousness and prevents all memory of the past, precludes the possibility of this, and since the circumstance of having previously existed prohibits him who lived before, and with whom these calamities which we suffer might be associated, from existing a second time, with any recollection of his other life, as the same combination of atoms of which we now consist, we may be assured that in death there is nothing to be dreaded by us, that he who does not exist cannot become miserable, and that it makes not the least difference to a man when immortal death has ended his mortal life that he was ever born at all. Whenever, therefore, you see a man express concern that it should be his lot after his death either to putrefy on the ground when his body is laid aside, or to be destroyed by flames, or by the jaws of wild beasts, you may know that his mind is not in a healthy state, 
and that some secret disquietude as to his fate is concealed in his breast, although he may himself deny that he believes any consciousness will remain to him after death. For, as I think, he does not make good what he professes, nor speaks from conviction from which he pretends to speak, nor withdraws and removes himself in thought wholly out of life, but, foolish as he is, makes something of himself still to survive. For when any one of such a character represents to himself, while alive, that birds and beasts will tear his body at death, he is seized with commiseration for himself, for neither does he at all distinguish himself dead from himself living, nor sufficiently withdraw himself from his exposed carcass, but supposes it to be still himself, and standing by it in imagination, communicates to it a portion of his own feeling. Hence he is concerned that he was born mortal, nor reflects that in real death there will remain of him no other self, which, surviving, may mourn for him that he has perished, and, standing upright, may lament that he, lying down, is torn in pieces or burnt to ashes. For if it is an evil at death to be ill-treated by the jaws and teeth of wild beasts, I do not see how it can be otherwise than unpleasant for a man being laid on a funeral pyre to burn in hot flames, or placed in honey to be suffocated, or to grow stiff with cold when he is lying on the highest flat of a gelid rock, or to be pressed down and overwhelmed with the weight of superincumbent earth. For now, men say, your pleasant home shall no more receive you, nor your excellent wife, nor shall your dear children run to snatch kisses, and touch your breast with secret delight. You will no more be able to be in flourishing circumstances, and to be a protection to your friends. Unhappily, one adverse day has taken from you, unfortunate man, all the numerous blessings of life. In such remarks they do not add this, nor now, moreover, does any regret for those things remain with you. Which truth, if men would well consider in their thoughts and adhere to it in their words, they would relieve themselves from much anxiety and fear of mind. You, for your part, says a mourner over a corpse, laid to sleep in your bed, will so remain as you are for whatever time is to come, released from all distressing griefs. But we, standing near you, shall inconsolably lament you reduced to ashes on the awful pyre and no lapse of time shall remove our unfading sorrow from our hearts. Of him, however, who makes such lamentations, we may ask this question. If the matter of death is reduced to sleep and rest, what can there be so bitter in it that any one should pine in eternal grief for the decease of a friend? This also is often a practice among men, that when they have sat down to a feast, and hold their cups in their hands, and overshadow their faces with chaplets, they say seriously and from their hearts, This enjoyment is but short to us, little man, soon it will have passed, nor will it ever hereafter be possible to recall it. As if at their death this evil were to be dreaded above all, that parching thirst should scorch and burn up the wretches, or an insatiable longing for some other thing should settle on them. Yet how different will be the fact! since not even when the mind and body are merely at rest together in sleep will any one feel concern for himself and his life, for, for our parts, our sleep might thus be eternal, nor does any care for ourselves affect us. 
and yet, at that season, the atoms, throughout our limbs, withdraw to no great distance from sensible motions, and the man who is suddenly roused from sleep quickly recollects himself. Death, then, we must consider to be of far less concern to us, if less can be than that which we see to be nothing. For a greater separation of the atoms of matter takes place in death, nor does any man awake when once the cold pause of life has overtaken him. Furthermore, if universal nature should suddenly utter a voice, and thus herself abrade any one of us, what mighty cause have you, O mortal, thus excessively to indulge in bitter grief? Why do you groan and weep at the thought of death? For if your past and former life has been an object of gratification to you, and all your blessings have not, as if poured into a leaky vessel, flowed away and been lost without pleasure, why do you not, O unreasonable man, retire like a guest satisfied with life, and take your undisturbed rest with resignation? But if those things of which you have had the use have been wasted and lost, and life is offensive to you, why do you seek to incur further trouble, which may all again pass away and end in dissatisfaction? Why do you not rather put an end to life and anxiety? For there is nothing further which I can contrive and discover to please you. Everything is always the same. If your body is not yet withered with years, and your limbs are not worn out and grown feeble, yet all things remain the same, even if you should go on to outlast all ages in living, and still more would you see them the same if you should never come to die. What do we answer to this but that nature brings a just charge against us, and sets forth in her words a true allegation? But would she not more justly reproach and abrade in severe accents him who, being miserable unreasonably, deplores death? Away with thy tears, wretch, she might well say, and forbear thy complaints. But if he who is older and more advanced in years complain, she may retort thus, after having been possessed of all the most valuable things of life, thou pinest and wasted away with age. But because thou always desirest what is absent, and despisest present advantages, life has passed from thee imperfect and unsatisfactory, and death has stood by thy head unawares, and before thou canst depart content and satisfied with thy circumstances. Now, however, resign all things unsuitable to thy age, and yield at once, with submissive feelings, to that which is stronger than thou, for it is necessary. And justly, as I think, would she address him, justly would she upbraid and reproach him, for that which is old, driven out by that which is new, always retires, and it is indispensable to repair one thing out of another. Nor is any man consigned to the gulf of Erebus, or black Tartarus, but allowed to retire peaceably to a dreamless sleep. The matter of which thou art made is wanted by nature, that succeeding generations may grow up from it. All which, however, when they have passed their appointed term of life, will follow thee, and so have other generations, before these, fallen into destruction, and other generations, not less certainly than thyself, will fall. Thus shall one thing never cease to rise from another, and thus is life given to none in possession, but to all only for use." Consider also how utterly unimportant to us was the past antiquity of infinite time, 
that elapsed before we were born. This, then, nature exhibits to us as a specimen of the time which will be again after our death. For what does there appear terrible in it? Does anything seem gloomy? Is not all more free from trouble than any sleep? And of the souls likewise, whatever are said to be in the profundity of Acheron, all the sufferings happen to ourselves, not in death, but in life. Tantalus, torpid with vain terror, does not, as it is reported, fear the huge rock impending over him in the air, but such terror rather dwells with us in life. A groundless fear of the gods oppresses mortals, and they dread that fall which fortune may assign to each. Nor do vultures penetrate into Titius, lying in Hades. Nor, however they might search in his huge breast, would they be able to find, through infinite time, anything to devour, of however vast an extent of body he may be, even though it be such as may cover, with its limbs outspread, not merely nine acres, but the orb of the whole earth. Nor yet would he be able to endure eternal pain, or to supply food incessantly from his own body. But he is a Titius among us, whom, lying under the influence of love, the vultures of passion tear, and anxious disquietude devours, or whom cares, with any other unbecoming feeling, lacerate. A Sisyphus, likewise, is before our eyes in life, who sets his heart to solicit from the people the fasces and sharp axes, and always retires repulsed and disappointed. For to seek power, which is empty, nor is ever granted, and constantly to endure hard labour in the pursuit of it, this is to push with effort the stone up the hill, which yet is rolled down again from the summit, and impetuously seeks the level of the open plain. To feed perpetually, moreover, an ungrateful nature, and to fill it with good things, and never to satisfy it, a kindness which the seasons of the years do to us, as they come round in their course, and bring their fruits and various charms, whilst we, notwithstanding, are never satisfied with the blessings of life. This is, I think, that which they relate of the damsels in the flower of their youth, that they pour water into the punctured vessel, which, however, can by no means be filled. But also Kerberus and the Furies are mentioned, and privation of light, and Tartarus, casting forth fires from his jaws, objects which are nowhere, nor indeed can be, but there is in life an eminent dread of punishment for enormous crimes. There is the prison, the reward of guilt, and the terrible precipitation of those who are condemned from the rock. There are stripes, executioners, the wooden horse, pitch, hot iron, firebrands, and though these may be absent, yet the mind, conscious of evil deeds, feeling dread in anticipation, applies to itself stings, and tortures itself with scourges, nor sees, in the meantime, what end there can be of its sufferings, nor what can be the limit of its punishment, and fears rather lest these same tortures should become heavier at death. Hence, in fine, the life of fools becomes, as it were, an existence in Tartarus. This reflection likewise you may at times address to yourself. Even the good Ancus, as Aeneas expresses it, has deserted the light with his eyes, who was much better in many things than thou, worthless man. Besides, many other kings and rulers of affairs, who swayed mighty nations, have yielded up the ghost. And what am I better than they? 
he even himself who formerly paved a road over the vast sea and afforded a way to his legions to pass through the deep and taught them to walk on foot through salt gulfs and despised the murmurs of the ocean trampling on it with his cavalry even he i say the light of life being withdrawn from him poured forth his soul from his dying body scipio the thunderbolt of war the dread of carthage gave his bones to the earth just as if he had been the meanest slave add to these the inventors of the sciences and the graces add the associates of the muses over whom the unrivalled homer having obtained the supremacy has been laid to rest in the same sleep with others when mature old age too gave democritus warning that the mindful motions of his intellect were languishing he himself of his own accord offered his head to death epicurus himself having run through his light of life is dead epicurus who excelled the human race in genius and threw all into the shade as the ethereal sun when rising obscures the stars wilt thou then hesitate and grudge to die in whom even while living and seeing life is almost dead thou who wasted the greater part of existence in sleep and snorest waking nor ceasest to see dreams and bearest a mind disturbed with empty terror nor canst thou frequently discover what evil affects thee when stupefied and wretched thou art oppressed with numerous cares on all sides and fluctuating with uncertain thought wondrous in terror if men could feel as they seem to feel that there is an oppression on their minds which wearies them with its weight and could also perceive from what causes it arises and whence so great a mass as it were of evil exists in their breasts they would not live in the manner in which we generally see them living for we observe them uncertain what they would have and always inquiring for something new and changing their place as if by the change they could lay aside a load he who has grown weary of remaining at home often goes forth from his vast mansion and suddenly returns inasmuch as he perceives that he is nothing bettered by being abroad he runs precipitately hurrying on his horses to his villa as if he were eager to carry succour to an edifice on fire but as soon as he has touched the threshold of the building he yawns or falls heavily to sleep and seeks forgetfulness of himself or even with equal haste goes back and revisits the city in this way each man flees from himself but himself as it always happens whom he cannot escape and whom he still hates adheres to him in spite of his efforts and for this reason that the sick man does not know the cause of his disease which if every one could understand he would in the first place having laid aside all other pursuits study to learn the nature of things since in such inquiries the state of eternity not of one hour merely is concerned a state in which the whole age of mortals whatever remains after death must continue besides why does so pernicious and so strong desire of existence compel us to remain anxious in uncertain perils a certain bound of life is fixed to mortals nor can death be avoided or can we exempt ourselves from undergoing it moreover we are continually engaged and fixed in the same occupations nor by the prolongation of life is any new pleasure discovered yet that which we desire seems while it is distant in the future to excel all other objects but afterwards when it has fallen to our lot 
recovered something else, and thus a uniform thirst of life occupies us, longing earnestly for that which is to come. While what fate the last period may bring us, or what chance may throw in our way, or what death awaits us, still remains in uncertainty. Nor, by protracting life, do we deduct a single moment from the duration of death. We cannot diminish aught from its reign, or cause that we may be for a less period sunk in non-existence. How many generations soever, therefore, we may pass in life, nevertheless that same eternal death will still await us. Nor will he be less long out of being who terminated his life under this day's sun than he who died many months and years ago. End of section 9